morning. Welcome. Hi. Thank you. My name is Craig. This morning we're going to enter into a conversation where it's very easy to throw words around and it is an entirely other thing to live with those words that get thrown around. This morning we are trying to answer the question, what do you do when Jesus doesn't meet our needs the way we think he should meet our needs. There are points in everybody's lives when we cry out to God in a moment of need and an answer doesn't come. You can look at stats. We've talked around here a lot about how church attendance is in decline. Do you know what is not in decline? Prayer. People cry out to God almost universally. Just a human experience. What do you do when those needs don't get met? It brings you to a fork in the road. Today and over the next three weeks, we're going to stand at that fork in the road and we're going to try to be honest. Again, it's very easy to throw words around about how you, how you move forward. It's an entirely different thing to live with those words. When we talk about Jesus meeting our needs and what does it look like for him to meet our needs in a way that's different from us, just, just so you know, we're not talking about like the obvious, like, okay, Jesus, I really want two Teslas. What? There's no God. Those are obvious. You can kind of figure that out just by walking outside. We're talking about when you bring needs to Jesus, like mom has cancer. Would you heal her? I need a job. Indeed.com is a depressing place to live. Please provide a job. Nothing. I'm talking about those moments. When we bring our needs to Jesus and it's met in a totally different way than how we would meet our needs. What do you do? In John chapter 6, it's a giant literary unit in the middle of John's gospel that deals with this very question. What do you do when Jesus doesn't meet needs the way we think he would? John chapter 6, Jesus is taking a walk around the neighborhood. There was a lot of heat in the kitchen, and he said, I'm going for a walk around the neighborhood. He's in Jerusalem. He healed on the Sabbath, and they're like, let's kill him. And he goes, I'm going to take a walk. So he heads over to Capernaum. He leaves the kitchen, heads around the neighborhood, and he is encountered with need. People heard, hey, this is a guy that heals people, and a giant crowd gathers to him. They come to him with the expectation, this is the guy that heals people, he'll heal us. You know what John chapter 6 does not record? Any healings. People come to Jesus and say, hey, we've got a need, would you meet it? Instead, Jesus performs two miracles, one where he feeds the 5,000, another where he walks on water. So we came to Jesus with one need, and he meets a different need. At the end of the passage we're going to look at today, they're like, okay, forget the healing thing. We can live with, you know, you know, crutches and stuff. That's fine. You can feed us. This is fantastic. And he leaves. What in the world? We came to Jesus for one thing. He didn't do that. He did something else. We're like, okay, we'll take that. We got that. And he goes, no, I'm not, I'm not here to do that. And he walks away. 
In John chapter 6, which is 71 verses, which is why we're breaking up into three weeks. And I know you think you've got a huge attention span, but you don't. We're breaking this up into three weeks. At the end of this passage, at the end of the 71 verses, the disciples, a bunch of disciples are like, we're out. We can't do this. And that's the fork of the road we're going to stand at for the next three weeks. What do you do when Jesus doesn't meet our needs the way we would meet our needs? John chapter 6 invites us to say the four most difficult words a human being can say. Thy will be done. If I were going to say four words, I would like to say, my will be done. Again, we're not talking about, hey, God, meet all my ridiculous desires. I would love everyone to like me. I'd love to have the most followers on the internet. I'd love to have all the money in the world. I'd love to have all my needs. No, we're not talking about that. We're talking about, I have real needs. That I, I can't see how this would be bad for you to do this. I need healing. I'm in pain. Can you heal me? My, I've been praying for the salvation of a, of a family member for years. Nothing. What are you doing? And we get to that fork in the road. And we see in John chapter 6 that Jesus doesn't meet our needs the way we would meet our needs. Instead, he offers us something different, something we call the shared life. Instead of saying, hey, I'll give you everything you want and, and, and good things, he says, hey, I'm going to give you the thing that actually gives me life. I'm here to offer you something totally different. It's an experience called the shared life. And the question is, will we go that way? And if we do, what does it look like? So please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We're going to read today about the feeding of the 5,000. In the 70s, 80s, and 90s, there was a group of scholars, they were called the Jesus Seminar, and they were trying to figure out, like, which of the miracles in the Gospels were true and really happened in the time-space we live in, and they had, like, an anti-supernatural bias, and they're like, these didn't happen, and if you read them about this account, it's pretty hilarious. They try to, like, explain it in a way that's not supernatural, and it doesn't make any sense with what John wrote. Clearly, God entered our story, and he does things a little differently. And he breaks the rules sometimes. And we're going to read a chapter where he breaks the rules, and we call it, when he breaks the rules, miracles. And the highlight that John is trying to work us toward is we're helpless to meet our own needs. We're absolutely helpless to meet our own needs. And yet we're at this fork. How's Jesus going to move? John chapter 6, we're going to read verses 1 through 15. And if you would please stand with me as we read God's Word. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. After this, that's when he healed uh, the man in Jerusalem. After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw the miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed up a hill, sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for Passover. Jesus saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, even if we worked for months, 
We wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Let's try again. Then Simon, Andrew's Peter brother, spoke up. Well, there's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. Well, what good is that to a huge crowd? Verse 10. This verse will become very important soon. Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on grassy slopes. The men alone numbered around 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish. They all ate as much as they wanted. Now everyone was full, and Jesus told his disciples, Now, gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. They picked up the pieces and filled the twelve baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, Surely he's the prophet we've been expecting. When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away to the hills by himself. This is the word of the Lord. God, we are living in tension. We have real needs, and we bring those needs to you, and you don't meet them the way we think you should. Father, I pray that we would sit in that tension this morning, because we trust you'll meet us there. Ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. The healing, the feeding, excuse me, of the 5,000. We see in this passage a need is, is brought to Jesus. First need, though. Why are the crowds following him? Verse 2 tells us they saw the healing he had done. So a crowd of people follows Jesus because they'd seen healing. Presumably, they would like to see more healing be done. It's probably safe to imagine they brought some sick folks with them. Here's a guy who's doing this. We'd like to see it again. Anybody have any ailments they'd like healed? Here we go. So they come to Jesus. Jesus does not heal them. Just already like, ah, that's kind of frustrating. He does something different. Moved by compassion, he feeds them. In the miracles that are recorded in John's biography of Jesus, Oftentimes, Jesus does these signs to say, this is who I am. Here's who I am. Here's what I do. That is totally different with the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus does not do this miracle to say, this is who I am. There's no talk of that. All the talk that happens after the miracle, is, is, it's stuff like this. Then Jesus took the loaves when he had given thanks. He distributed them, which is so fascinating. He distributed them. You just picture Jesus running around meeting needs. Hey, here you go, here you go. He distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. The fruit of this miracle is not, hey, I'm God, check it out, look what I did. Isn't that kind of cool? It's him meeting a need. It's people living in scarcity, and then they experience abundance. They had as much as they wanted. So much so that the 12 disciples gather up all these things into, into baskets. Verse 12 says this, gather up the leftovers so nothing is wasted. That's not some like pithy scriptural like don't waste leftovers. They're making a point here. They picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps. If you read throughout church history, there's been a lot of symbolism that's seen as why were there 12 baskets? Maybe there were you know, 12 tribes of Israel. Maybe there's some mystical understanding we can see here. I'm a simple person. I just think it's because there were 12 disciples. The baskets were big. They had as much as they could carry. Jesus sees people who are no doubt living in scarcity. 
These people were for sure poor. Under the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire tried to just exterminate the Jews. These people were living in poverty. They come to Jesus in need. And he's moved by compassion to meet those needs. And how does he meet those needs? With abundance. There's so much. There's so much to go around. That's who we're coming to with our needs. Look again at verse 10. Why does verse 10 say, there's about, there's about like 10 or so references to the Hebrew Bible in this short passage. We're going to really hyper-focus on one of them. Verse 10, tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on grassy slopes. Why do they sit down on grassy slopes? Because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. We're watching the good shepherd here. We're watching Jesus moved by compassion for people in need. Jesus doesn't care about this little segment of our life that we've created called our spiritual life. He cares about our lives. And the good shepherd leads us to green pastures. Then the people say, all right, can we keep doing this? And he says, no. We're doing something else. Oh my gosh, that's frustrating. We came to you with one need, you kind of you already subverted us, met another need. Okay, great, we're on, we're on board with you. Oh yeah, we're going to do something else again. Ah! See, the beautiful thing about Jesus, you can't lead people from whom you get your identity. You can't serve people if you need their approval. Jesus does not need anyone's approval, and that makes him a great leader. It also makes him a very frustrating leader. Like, no, I, I, can we just stop here? And he's like, we're going. It reminds me a lot in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia in Prince Caspian. I have no idea what number it is because every, like, everybody's like little book series is numbered differently. It's like three or five in some of them. But in Prince Caspian, the kids go back to Narnia. Like, this is great. But it's like hundreds of years later and it's chaos and they're in need. And they're just waiting. Oh, man, when Aslan shows up, everything's going to be great. And then Lucy sees Aslan. And she's like, great, all our problems are solved. But nobody believes her. So she's wandering around again and again. Nobody believes her. And it, it creates all kinds of tension and heartache. So when she finally sees him, she's like, Aslan, how come this wasn't like before? Like how you showed up and you just made everything okay. And Aslan turns to her and says this, things never happen the same way twice. That is what following Jesus is like in a nutshell. I was in need. I asked for help. Boom. Holy cow. We're good to go. Thank you, Lord. I'm in need. I asked for help. Things never happen the same way twice. And we're back to that fork in the road. I have needs. I'm not asking for two Teslas. I'm not asking for, you know, Mark Cuban to be my neighbor. I am just asking for a job. What in the world? What do I do? And he doesn't meet our needs the way they do. The crowd gets frustrated with this. In the passage we're going to look at next week, they approach him. And they're like, where'd you go? What are you doing? We said, we wanted to make you king. We wanted this party to keep going. We wanted you to keep kind of doing it like this. And listen to what Jesus says. I gave you bread. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they died. 
But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. What's Jesus saying? Throughout John's gospel, there's this blending of the temporal with the eternal. And we so often don't get it. We look at the temporal and we miss the eternal. Think about when Nicodemus in John chapter 3 comes to Jesus at night. Nick at night. (laughs) And he says... You're a great teacher. And Jesus says, you must be born again. He's like, how the heck am I supposed to do that? Like, I can't, like, climb up my mom's womb. Like, what are you talking about? And Jesus says, you must be born from above. There's the temporal and there's the eternal. Here, we get the same thing. Jesus sees needs, meets them with temporal, food. They're like, hey, we want to keep having this food. He says, I'll offer you real food. The stuff that gives me life and sustenance. They're like, "Uh, what? What is that? He goes on to tell what it is in chapter 6, verse 56 and 57. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, this is so crucial. Maybe one of the most important verses in the Bible. I live because of the Father. So he who eats me will also live because of me. What is Jesus saying? We get tripped up on like the weird eat food. We'll get there next week. Here's what he's saying. I have a shared life with the Father and the Spirit. I am in intimate relationship with it. We share life. What makes them alive makes me alive. What makes them suffer makes me suffer. And I'm offering that to you. The shared life. What's the shared life? What gives you life gives me life. What causes you to suffer causes me to suffer. Jesus says, I have that with the triune God. Would you like that? John chapter 6 ends with these disciples saying, this is a hard teaching, and they leave. I, I don't know. We just, we just, we liked what you were doing. And we're back to the fork in the road. Do we like the gifts and blessings of God? Or do we like the giver of those blessings, God? Oh, that is a fork in the road we all need to spend some time at. Why do we follow Jesus? Suffering makes us ask that question when we're not ready to ask that question. We can keep ourselves busy. We can keep ourselves busy with church. We can keep ourselves busy with work. And we're always outrunning those tough questions. Why follow God? Suffering brings that right to the front. You got needs. He's not meeting him. Still going to follow? It's very easy to throw words around. Living with these words we throw around is an entirely separate matter. The disciples brought real needs to Jesus. I want you to see, their two reactions of two of these disciples are how we approach God with our need. Look at Philip. This is in verse 5. Jesus saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip. Philip was local. Philip grew up here. He knew where you could get a deal. He knew where the grocery stores were. He knew like, yeah, they put the carts up, but you can still get in. Where can we buy food to feed all these people? He was testing Philip. He knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, even if we work for months, we wouldn't have enough to feed. And it literally says, a, a scrap to these people. He literally says half a year's wage wouldn't be enough to create scarcity. He's saying this, there is no chance 
Not even for the king of France. We are facing an impossible situation. I have a need. It cannot be met. That's where some of us get stuck. We feel the impossibility and the fragility of our lives and our needs, and we just don't, we don't, we don't move. We're just stuck. You get cancer. You don't, you don't want to look at it. You don't want to face it. You just stop. I'm that type of person, when I get a bill in the mail, I don't open it. I don't know why. I just think it'll like go away. Like, oh, we're not ready to face that yet. We're going to just leave that on the table. Maybe they'll forget about it. That's what some of us do with suffering. Hard things come, keep busy. Don't look at it. Because I, I don't know how. I have no idea what I would do to even try to fix that. Some of us, though, are more like Andrew. You've got to think about Peter's, like, home life. What was that like? They just seem like two really, like, think later folks. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Oh, there's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But well, what good is that with the whole crowd? Andrew's like, we can try. Yeah, we're faced with an impossible task, but pfft, let's just roll up our sleeves. Let's put some willpower in here. Let's get some effort in this. And Jesus has brought us to a place where he is saying, you have a need. It is in front of you, and you cannot meet it. Neither your willpower and neither being frozen. Uh, the author, Leslie Jameson, in her memoir, she was writing about addiction. And here's what she said about struggling with addiction. I needed to believe in something stronger than my own willpower. So many of us, when we talk about our spiritual lives, and we say, hey, here's an invitation to step into a spir your spiritual life. It's like, okay, how do I do that? I roll up my sleeves and I work really hard. I've got to... I don't know what I do. What do I do? I guess I, I read my Bible. I should probably do that. And I, I pray. And church has some role in that. Maybe I should go. I'm not every week. That's a lot. But I'll, I'll do something like that. Jesus in John chapter 6 says, and then what? And then what? And he reminds us, it's not nice. Your ancestors ate manna, yet they still died. I could, I could meet these temporary needs that you have. And they're significant. Remember, he's the good shepherd. He has them lie down in green pastures. He's not indifferent to their suffering. But they're still going to get hungry later. You can get cured from your cancer, and you're still going to die. And Jesus is saying, I care about your needs. But let's get to your deeper needs, your real needs. Remember, God is not interested in this little segment of our, your life that we've labeled our spiritual lives. He's interested in our lives. What do we do when we're at that fork in the road where God's not meeting our needs the way we think he would, but he's offering us something else, the shared life? This is a lot like, imagine, imagine, I don't know what, what, who your favorite celebrity is, but imagine like a Taylor Swift or like a Mark Cuban comes to your place of work. Like you're just typing away at your cubicle and then Taylor Swift comes up to you and says, hello. You're like, oh my gosh. In that moment... You're probably thinking of all the ways your life could potentially change because what if someone took a picture of this? What if, what if people thought we were friends? Holy cow. What if she like endorsed this project I'm working on and man, that would open all these doors for me. That's fantastic. And then imagine though Taylor says, no, no, no. I don't want to do any of that. I just want to be your friend. And you're like, ah. 
you know, it would probably be better for me, though, if you did all these other things for me. She's like, nah, that might. But I want to be your friend. That's what Jesus is doing with these folks. He's saying, hey, yes, look at all the stuff I can do. Look at how your life will change if you make me king. Yeah, I'm not after that, though. I'm after this. The living Father sent me. I live because of him. You can live because of that relationship. What gives me life can now give you life. How do we go from a place where we're saying my will be done to thy will be done? It starts with a shared life. Look at what he says. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides. This passage throughout church history, people have interpreted this as having to do with communion, that Jesus feeds the 5,000, and that's like a picture of communion, so we should take communion, that's how we abide. There's a lot of truth in communion as a way to abide. This passage is not about communion. If it was about communion, you would expect Jesus to have wine and bread, but he has bread and fish. And we could do communion with fish. As a New Englander, I would love that, but I don't know what it would mean. He's saying this, if you partake in the life I'm offering, if you come to me, if you abide in me, if what gives me life, you're saying, yeah, I, join, I want to join that. I want to say yes to Jesus. You will experience this thing we call the shared life. How do we do that? We have to say these things. Thy will be done. That is how we start to experience the shared life. Thy will be done. And we don't get there like Andrew tried with willpower. I got to try really hard to, to surrender and submit. Thomas Keating once said this, chief act of the will is not effort, but consent. We don't get to say, thy will be done through trying really hard. It's an act of consent. And here's a beautiful thing. When you say, thy will be done, you are consenting. You're saying, yeah. Do for me what I cannot do for myself. You have to do this. And whatever results that gets, I trust you too. Thy will be done. How on earth do we move from all of us? I don't get a free pass because I'm a pastor. I, every day, I have a death grip on my own desires in life. How do we loosen that death grip to where we can go from my will be done to thy will be done? There's one spiritual practice that I think has been an invaluable resource for Christians, men and women, through the ages to get us to a place where we can loosen that death grip. And it's called silence and solitude. Refraining from conversations, screens, and distractions. It's really hard to know your deepest need when you run from your deepest need with work, with family, and with being so busy. When we stop the running, it all catches up. That is why I believe one of the biggest punishments in the U.S. prison system is solitary confinement. It all catches up. When we spend time in silence and solitude, thoughts from the depth bubble up. Things we've been running from meet us.
And what often happens in that moment is the requests now get a little different. What was so important a day ago, an hour ago, oh, that's, that's, that's real. I'm not saying that's unimportant. Oh, but there's something deeper in my soul happening beneath that. This is not, again, a willpower experience. Silence and solitude, a lot of people talk about how they go into silence and solitude and they experience God. I've done a lot of silence and solitude and a lot of it has been like, yeah, did it, nailed it, got the t-shirt. It's kind of like, well, they don't have whales here. Deer. If any of you head into the woods to try to see a deer, which I don't know why you do that. They're just like rodents that are big. But let's say you went into the woods to try to see a deer. Do you think you're going to see a deer? No, thank you. Probably not. When we head into God's presence in silence and solitude, saying, okay, I'm going to experience his presence. It's going to overwhelm me. Here we go! That's the willpower sneaking into that. We, we can't, we, when we enter into God's presence and when we, we sit in silence and we wait on him, we have to also release any expectation of what he's going to do. Oh, and you know what's really frustrating? Jesus does not get his identity from my approval of him. I can fuss, I can scream, I can cry, and I wait. But in silence and solitude, our deepest needs bubble up, and we bring those to him. I had heard a lot about silence and solitude, and I really started practicing it when I became the senior pastor of a local church here in town. I had heard, and someone goes, where? I had heard, I had heard people talk about it a lot. Someone even said, hey, you need to take a retreat. You need to do this. And I went, must be nice. Or I'll have time later. We'll get there. And a few months go by, and I am just like overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed with the weight of like trying to balance being a senior pastor and I've got these little kids who need me and there's a lot of change. That's a bad word I don't like to say. There's a lot of things happening that are new and it's overwhelming. And I pray and we see cool things happen, but I am running out of gas. I don't know what to do. So I finally do it. I head off, I rent an Airbnb, and I bring a list of like 20 things I'm going to pray for. And in like 10 minutes, I got through the list. And I'm like, wow, what do I do? And I knew I need to get inputs out. No, I can't listen to podcasts. I'm not going to watch anything. I'm just going to be alone with my thoughts. And everything I had been running from caught up. And I'm angry. I feel alone. I'm blaming people. I'm asking why questions a lot. Why is this happening to me? But if it's true that Jesus is the good shepherd and he loves his people, love meets needs. And we can't bring needs to him if we don't know what those needs really are. And so I have this experience of silence and solitude where I just, it was hard and all these things bubbled up and I don't know what to do with this. And so I came home thinking like, well, that was... Hard, and I'm not doing that again. It's kind of a waste of time. I don't know why people talk about this. I, you know, I didn't grow up. Well, I did grow up in like a hippy dippy environment. I did grow up in a hippy dippy environment, and blah. 
And so I just wait. And that night, I'm doing dishes, thinking like, yeah, I don't know. And someone sent me a text with a Christian song on it. And I don't listen to Christian music because I have taste. <laughs> and I was like, all right. And so I put it in my ears, and I started listening to this song. Boom. All I can say is I was not alone in that kitchen. And there was this experience of like, okay, you see, I get it. You can't get that in this world where everyone's vying for your attention. Everybody wants something from you, and we just stay so busy. You have to pull the e-brake every once in a while. It's going to look different for people in different seasons, and you have to give yourself grace. You're a young parent. I don't know what silence and solitude looks like. Well, I do. I am a young parent. It's hard. You know, you got to work with people to make things a reality. You're a student. But you need to just take whatever it is, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, get the inputs out and just sit with God and say, I have no expectation. I don't know what you're going to do. But I have a need. It feels impossible. What happens every time is I come back to that need. And this, in this particular time, I remember thinking that, man, Compass Church is Everest, and I don't think I can survive the climb. When I came back, what this overwhelming sense I have was God was like, I'm a lot bigger than 600 Sylvie Street. That's our address. I'm a lot bigger than these four walls. Oh, man, I got so much more going on. Come with me. Okay. Let's do that. Let's do that. We write these sermons. They don't get written alone. They're, they're written in community, which is, it really just means I do a ton of studying, and I sit in front of a bunch of people, and I'm like, like, here's all that I studied. I have no idea what to do with it. And they help me take shape with some of this stuff. And as we were writing this, the, the people that were helping with this process, they all told stories. I had a job. I really liked this job. I was successful at this job. It was moving. It was working. Boom, it's gone. I had this identity. I was really good at my job. People looked at me for answers, and then I had a life change. I got cancer, and I'm sick, and I'm not getting healed, and I don't know what to do. And all of them resonated with and described this experience of sitting just like in, a, in uh, the mental picture I got was you're sitting in your, your driveway, and you're just pounding the steering wheel. And you're just saying, like, why? Where are you? What's going on? God, like, why am I walking through this? I don't like this. This is hard. Where are you? Didn't you say you were going to meet my needs? Didn't they have 12 baskets? Like, wasn't there flourishing? I'm not flourishing. And you just cry. And it's almost like in that moment, God says, oh, there you are. Where have you been hiding? Welcome to the party. I'm not worried about your spiritual life. I'm worried about your life. And the real you just came out. Now let's talk. Now let's talk. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15 is bookended with Jesus doing this. 
Listen to this. So he leaves Jerusalem. After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him. What do we hear? A guy trying to get away from people. What do we see at the very end? When Jesus saw that the people were ready uh, to, be their, to force him to be their king, he slipped away by himself. What does it mean to be a disciple? We are learners. We're students. We emulate the life of our rabbi. What's our rabbi doing? Silence and solitude. What's he doing? He's getting away from people. Why? Because he lives this thing called the shared life. God makes him alive. I don't mean that Jesus would die, but God, as the author of life, Jesus is God the Son. That life that they share together, Jesus spends time abiding and then invites us to do the same. The invitation to follow Jesus is not an invitation to get busy. It's an invitation to abide, to walk with a good shepherd who makes us lie down in green pastures, even if it ain't the pastures we would pick. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.